Welcome to the Archive of the Month podcast. My name's Catherine. Before Christmas, I had a little bit of time off, and one of the things I did was read a review of a newish book called Endell Street by Wendy Moore. It tells the story of Dr Flora Murray and Dr Louisa Garrett-Anderson and the military hospital that they ran together in London during World War I. Why am I telling you this? Well, I don't know if other archivists and curators experience this uh, when they find out something about their patch, but I get very excited when I stumble across something about Buck's history in real life. And reading this article, I learned that these two pioneering women had a connection to Buckinghamshire. They owned a house together in Penn. I contacted the author, Wendy Moore, to learn a little bit more about Murray and Garrett Anderson. What you're about to hear is that conversation, which takes in the suffragette movement, Paris in 1914, Endell Street itself. Um, We also speculate about what Flora and Louisa's life in Penn might have been like, and we talk about whether they were a lesbian couple. But what you're going to hear first is Wendy reading a description of their home in Penn, Paul End, from her book. A world away from the air raids and ambulance convoys of London, the country cottage was a haven of tranquility. After catching a train from Marleybone, Vera and Rachel were met at Beaconsfield, as promised, by an elderly man named Buckles, who drove them in a pony trap through the lush spring countryside to the little village of Penn, nestling in the Chiltern Hills. The two-storey cottage was a gem, Vera declared. Overlooking woods and fields, it was surrounded by clipped lawns and colourful borders, blooming with tulips, wallflowers and forget-me-nots. Inside, the house contained two of everything. As well as antique curios and expensive china, there were shelves crammed with books on women's rights. As Ray and I investigated, we could not help thinking, what a wonderful pair of women these two are, said Vera. And we wondered if their plans for their big undertaking had been hatched in this peaceful, faraway spot. Wendy, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Nice to join you. You're here today to talk about a couple of Bucks legends, Dr. Flora Murray and Dr. Louisa Garrett Anderson. We are using as a way into the story one document in our archive collection that has any mention of them which is a burial register for Penn, which records Flora Murray's sad demise in 1923. Using the end of her story as the start, can you tell me a little bit about uh, Dr Flora Murray and her, her background? Yes, well, Flora Murray was born in Scotland. She actually came from quite a, a long-lived family. That Her um, father and then her brother were the laird of Murray Thwaite, so she grew up in, in quite a sort of um, comfortable background. And she decided to train as a doctor. At the end of the 19th century, it was very difficult still for women to train as doctors. And the only place in London, certainly, for women to train was at the London School of Medicine for Women. So she enrolled there. 
She actually finished her her degree in Durham, so her final year she studied in Durham, but she qualified as a doctor. She was specialised in um, anaesthetics, in fact, but like most women doctors, it was very difficult to find work. Most mainstream hospitals only took men on, most uh, medical schools only admitted women, most uh, specialties, uh, women did not get an entry into those. So it was very difficult to find work. While some female doctors had simply accepted that, she was actually very angry about the situation. She actually wrote in the New Statesman about her frustration at women not being allowed into most uh, medical jobs. Most women doctors had to work in hospitals that were for women and children only. Uh, Usually hospitals run by women, and that's what she did. She worked in a new hospital, which had been set up by Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, And she jointly set up a small children's hospital with Louisa Garrett Anderson. So Louisa Garrett Anderson had had a very similar experience. She'd trained in medicine at the London School of Medicine for Women. She had uh, met Flora and they'd both become suffragettes. So they'd both taken part in the suffragette actions. Louisa actually went to prison for four weeks for smashing a window. And Flora had become uh, Mrs. Pankhurst's doctor. So she treated many suffragettes who had been injured in protests. And they also became life partners. They were absolutely devoted to each other. So before the First World War, they'd uh, met each other and worked together and jointly founded their children's hospital. So these are two women who are fighting against what is expected of women at this time. They become professionals, they're life partners, and they're also politically engaged. This wasn't necessarily the trajectory expected of them. How did they come to Buckinghamshire? So, well, they both worked in London, and like many professional people, they kind of want, they really wanted um, a retreat in the countryside. So it, initially, um, it was Louisa who had bought a, a small cottage in the village of Penn, And then she had, we think, probably demolished that and then built a new house on the same land, jointly with Flora. So together they built their new house, which was called Paul End. And they would go there for weekends to really escape from the the noise and the busyness of London. It became a favourite place to go. Don't know why they chose Penn particularly. It was obviously not far from London and it had good railway connections. So it's possible to to work there, but also to come back quickly to London if they needed to do for for emergencies and uh, for for their medical work. The the question on my mind is what the community of Penn would have made of that, that is a really interesting question, and I've often wondered myself. They were two women living together, clearly devoted to each other. They lived together really effectively as a married couple. But I don't think people thought anything of it, really. It was very common for two women to live together for whatever reasons, um, often for financial reasons or for personal reasons. So many women who didn't marry found it convenient to share a house. It meant sharing expenses. They had a companion, particularly quite a few women doctors did that. They had somebody who was in the same profession, who understood their work. So I think most people probably didn't think anything of it. They didn't think anything unusual about it. They had a housekeeper who looked after the house for them when they were away. 
And we know that there was a man who was called Buckles. I don't know his full name, but he would meet, certainly meet people at the station and probably met them as well from the train um, when they got off the train in Beaconsfield and, and take them to the cottage. So I think they were accepted within the community and that they were, after all, you know, women doctors. So they did have some professional status. During the war, they did become more and more um, well known as well. World War One was a big turning point for them professionally. Can you tell me what happened? When the war broke out, the vast majority of suffragettes, they immediately suspended their campaign and joined the war effort. All the, the war with men was forgotten and, and now they got behind the, the British home effort to help the war, basically. And that's what Flora and Louisa did. So they were actually the first women who ran a medical outfit to go abroad. They decided within a week of the war starting that they would take a medical unit to France and they immediately started raising funds, finding supplies and recruiting fellow workers to go to Paris. So they actually set off for Paris just six within six weeks of the war starting. In many ways, they wanted to do their bit. They were patriotic. They wanted to use their skills to help the wounded. But it was also an opportunity for them to, for the first time, treat men because treating men was completely taboo for women doctors to do military surgery, which had not been done by women previously, and to really prove that they could do exactly the same same work as male doctors and military doctors too. So they initially ran a hospital in a hotel in Paris under the auspices of the French Red Cross. They took with them 18 other people. So most of those were women. There were three other women doctors and later two more women doctors joined them. And they ran a hospital in the Hotel Claridge. It was a luxury hotel converted into a hospital within a couple of days. And they treated men from the front line. Within a few months, Army actually agreed that they could run a hospital under the auspices of the Army near to Boulogne. From initially being really not wanted and the Army being telling women doctors that their services were not needed, they turned things around very quickly army doctors came to visit their hospital in Paris and they were so impressed that they immediately uh, became their allies and their advocates. So they were running two hospitals in France by the end of 1914 and at that point it was realised that the army needed far more hospitals in England and so they were officially invited to run a major military hospital in the centre of London in May 1915. And that was the first time women had been invited to run a, a major military hospital. It was so it was unprecedented. They ran this hospital in Endell Street in, in Covent Garden, which had about 500 beds. All the staff were female, so just all the doctors and nurses, but also all the clerks, stretcher bearers, cleaners, orderlies. They were all female, with the exception of a, a tiny handful of men. And they ran the hospital throughout the First World War, treating wounded men sent back from the front. In all, they treated some uh, 26,000 patients who, who were wounded in the First World War. The hospital got quite a reputation, didn't it? it? It proved not only to be popular, but a desirable place to, to end up if you were injured. 
I think that they felt really they did have to prove that they could do the job. So they went out of their way to work twice as hard as most men. And their hospital did get reputation for being very professional, very well run, very efficient, but also for being very homely because Louisa Garrett Anderson said that she felt most men were more wounded in their minds than in their bodies. So she went to great lengths to make sure that the, all the wards were very bright and airy and welcoming. There was a little courtyard which had been very dark and grim because the, the building itself had been a former workhouse. And this courtyard was turned into a, a lovely green haven. And they put on um, entertainment. So there were something like a thousand entertainers a year visited the hospital. The men were given books. They were taught needlework. So it was very popular with the men. Some even asked to go there. So initially the army had thought that soldiers would not want to be treated by women doctors, that it would be such a taboo that they actually wouldn't accept that. But they very quickly proved that wasn't the case. And the men uh, were very proud of their hospital and talked of it as being the best hospital in London and now, I'm listening to you talk about this with a growing sense of envy, because as I said, we have very little about Flora and Louisa in our collection, but it's very clear that you've managed to uncover some really fascinating sources. And one of those sources that I was really interested in was the journal of Vera Scantlebury. The journal of Vera Scantlebury, who was an Australian doctor. And um, the link here with Vera and Buckinghamshire is that Flora and Louisa often put their, their cottage, Paul End, at her disposal for when she needed to recoup. Well, during the war, I think Flora and Louisa didn't get much time to visit their cottage in Penn because they were working so hard at the hospital. They lived in the hospital throughout the war and they were on call all the time. And Louisa in particular worked very long hours doing um, operations. But what they did was they invited staff at the hospital to go and spend weekends in Penn at their cottage so they could really rest and recuperate and and recharge their batteries so many of the women doctors and um, some of the other staff uh, went down there for weekends there is a lovely description of a visit to the cottage by Vera Scantlebury uh, she was a young Australian surgeon so she'd actually sailed from Australia specifically to go and work at Endor Street she wrote a diary which was in the form of letters that she sent home and she was very honest so she talked a lot about her her trials and her difficulties and her mixed emotions and it was only she'd only been at the hospital two weeks and she was clearly finding it quite difficult and struggling a bit when uh, Louisa asked if she'd like to go to the cottage for the, a weekend and she went there with a fellow Australian surgeon, Rachel Champion. So Vera, in her letter, she talks about being met off the train at Beaconsfield by Buckles. And then he took, he took them in a pony and trap to the, to the cottage. Uh, it's called a cottage, but I think it was quite a substantial building in actual fact. So it was a two-storey building. Uh, she described it as a gem. And inside there was an open fire. There were with, with two sofas in front. There were, um, she said, two of everything. So Flora and Louisa had um, two chairs, two sofas, two of everything, basically. 
and the housekeeper cooked meals for them. So they took down to the um, cottage a basket of food and she cooked for them. And they just really enjoyed relaxing in front of this fire, sleeping in this quiet, tranquil countryside and having picnics in the garden. It was a beautifully kept garden filled with flowers and beech trees. And then surrounding that, there were uh, woods and fields. So they went for long walks and long talks. And after that first visit, um, Vera visited several times. Um, so she went there, she talked about going there and having lovely picnics with um, other members of staff and sitting there in the summer with the blackbirds singing and the, and the bees buzzing. So it really was a haven of tranquility. It was a lovely escape from London in the war when people were actually under attack from the skies. I'm not sure Penn has changed that much since then. I think it's still a very green and, and peaceful place. So these two women living together, they are working together. They have embraced duty during World War I and proven themselves, gained respect in what they've achieved. What happens to them at the end of a war? You're absolutely right. I mean, they had proved that women doctors were as good as men, that they could run a military hospital as well as men. And so there was no longer any argument that women doctors were not capable of the same jobs as men. But as soon as the war ended, women doctors were expected to go back to doing exactly the jobs they had done before. So in a sense, they had really gained nothing. Male doctors came back from the army. They wanted their jobs back quite understandably. And so women doctors who had worked in various hospitals had to give up those jobs. Uh, women who'd taken over private practices uh, from male doctors had to give those up as well. So Endell Street did stay open for a year after the war, treating the victims of the Spanish flu. But after that, um, one year after the end of the war, the hospital was closed down. Flora and Louisa, for a little while, they tried to pick up their own, their old jobs. They uh, went back to um, treating women mainly and children in private practice. They carried on running their children's hospital, but it didn't last for very long. And so they retired after um, a couple of years in 1922. They retired to Penn. So they, yeah, they had been, I think, quite exhausted by the experience of the war. But very sadly, it was only another year after that that Flora died so she was quite young she died when she was um, 44 of cancer she had been basically the um, chief doctor in charge of end of street so I think she really had been you know, worn out and worn down by her war work and um, she was buried in in Penn as, as you mentioned then it was another 20 years that Louisa did she live in Penn for those 20 years Yes, um, Louisa carried on living on her own in Penn for another 20 years. So she lived to see the, the Second World War start and worked briefly in the Second World War. And she died in 1943. I probably should have mentioned earlier that Flora Murray's funeral was a, a very poignant event. She actually died on Louisa's birthday, quite sadly. And there was a military style send off for her in the church in Penn. They had a service. They had lots of nurses who'd uh, previously worked at the Endor Street Hospital who came to that. And um, she was buried in a, a little plot in a, a corner of the churchyard, a stone put there. And the last post was, um, was played at her grave. So it was a very sad, sad occasion. And Louisa, after that, she, she lived on her own. She didn't form any other very strong relationships. So she had really lost her 
lifetime's companion. When she died, she was cremated and her ashes were scattered on the South Downs. But at that point, her name was then added to the, the gravestone at Flora's grave. So her name's there as well. And the words, which um, I always find very moving, which said, um, we have been gloriously happy. Um, so such a lovely sentiment, I think. It brings a smile to my face. I've got it scribbled down here in my notes. Louisa has sent me on a wild goose chase trying to find her burial because I assumed, as her name is on the gravestone, the memorial, ah. that she was buried in pen. And indeed, there are a lot of sources that claim yeah. that she's buried in pen, but there's nothing in the registers. And it was only in the last day or two that I've managed to uncover that she was cremated. And I, I still, it's yeah. only now that, I, now that you say it that I know what happened to the ashes. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's those little um, details which are so important to building a historical narrative that can be so hard to pin down sometimes. Because I was thinking, as it's 1943, was there an administrative slip-up in wartime burials in Penn? Yeah, something like I that. think a lot of people did assume that she was also buried with Flora, but um, uh, I think like a lot of doctors, she wanted to be cremated. So she died actually in a nursing home in Brighton. She'd obviously requested that she should be cremated, but yeah, her name is remembered in Penn to this day. Were they a romantic couple, in your opinion? It's well, in my opinion, yes, definitely. We can't know absolutely definitively whether they were a lesbian couple or not. They didn't refer to that. There are no letters between them that I've come across, but they had identical diamond rings. They were absolutely devoted to each other. Flora wrote a book about Ender Street after the hospital closed, and that book was dedicated to Louisa, and she was described as my loving comrade, and at other times, Louisa talked about um, she, how she hated being apart from Flora. So they were absolutely devoted. They were as committed to each other as any married couple, heterosexual married couple could be. Frustrating, isn't it? Because unless you find that burning piece of evidence, we'll just, we'll never know. Mm. I think from my point of view as an archivist, trying to find LGBT histories in the archive, it's so hard. Yes, I, well, so, I think a lot of lesbian, a lot of lesbian history is invisible, isn't it? For that very reason, that it's very difficult to find um, hard and fast details of a relationship. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't one. So it's um, important not to make assumptions either way. I think, as I said before, as well, I, mean, I think it was quite acceptable for two women to live together before the war. But there was quite a backlash um, in the 1920s against um, the idea of women being lesbians. It become more out in the open then. Part of that backlash led to the banning of um, the book, uh, The Well of Loneliness, about a lesbian relationship. So I think the climate had changed. It had gone in, in reverse, um, in, in a sense. We're talking to you because you've researched all this recently. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book and how we can get our hands on it? It came out um, in 1920, sorry, 2020, but it was published last year in April. It was launched just as we went into the first lockdown, which made life quite difficult because obviously bookshops closed and uh, all my festivals and other events were postponed or cancelled. Um, so the book's um, out already. It's, it's there. But the paperback is coming out in March, March the 4th. Um, the paperback is available. So, yeah, so it should hopefully be in bookshops when they do reopen again. Hi, everyone. A quick update, Wendy's book, Endell Street, 
It's available now in hardback from wherever you buy your books online. The paperback version is coming out in August. Details of the book are listed in the blog that accompanies this episode. Once more, I'd like to say a big thank you to Wendy. If you have any comments or questions about this episode, drop me a line at archives at buckinghamshire.gov.uk.